Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. Warren, welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. Good to see you here. Man, I miss you so much. Um, Warren knows that I, I can't change a light bulb without him. I mean, I, I call him after he gets home uh, and I get home. We work at church and I get home. If I'm doing anything, I have to call him Warren. Weeks can do anything. And uh, it's good to have a man like that in, in your life and in, in my life. Uh, Warren, we are collecting a love offering for you. Surprise. Um, we, did, we didn't know you'd come to church, actually, so it's kind of awkward to do it right in front of him. Um, but if you feel led to give, Warren, I'm telling you, the more, <laughs> the more you give, the more you'll get today, brother. So I, I encourage you, anything in the gray buckets <laughs> is a love offering for Warren and for Margie. We love you guys, and uh, we want to meet your needs in all the ways we can. First um, Kings chapter 17 is where I am this morning. Second message in the series entitled Firefall. We're going through the book of First and Second Kings, not really verse by verse, but more hopping along from story to story uh, to get some of the great moments in the life of the prophet Elijah and then after him the prophet Elisha. So jump in with me. I know some of you who missed last week went back to watch so you could be ready and it's a good thing because this morning we're picking up exactly where we left off last week. First Kings Chapter 17, verse 17, we left off at verse 16 last week. Remember now, Elijah appears out of nowhere. He's a prophet from God in the time of one of the most wicked kings who ever lived, King Ahab. Elijah comes with one message, it will not rain until God lets it rain, and I say it rains, and so a drought begins. That drought's going to last over three years, which is just amazing. During that time, at one point, God takes Elijah to live beside a particular brook near the Jordan River where he drinks all the water he needs and the birds feed him meat and bread twice a day, which is amazing. After that, God moves into a village called Zarephath. There he lives with a widow woman and her son who God has appointed to feed him. It's a great story we read last week. She has nothing and yet every single day she has exactly enough to feed herself, her son, and the prophet Elijah. And so this has been the arrangement for some time. We don't know how long. But verse 17 just picks up some time later, and that's where we are. So everybody ready? First Kings chapter 17, verse 17. So read together with me. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, oh man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, give me your son. He took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, oh Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? Elijah stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, oh Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. The woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you're a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. There's an old saying. Um, I've heard it all my life. Nobody really knows who said it first. Um, but if you live long enough, you're at some point going to begin to agree, at least in part, with the old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Y'all ever heard that? What's that mean? No good deed goes unpunished. It's the idea that in real life, every time you try to do something good, it's going to backfire somehow. 
You ever experience that? You know, it's like you go to the hospital to visit your sick friend and you come home with COVID, you know. It's just like I was just trying to do something good and this is the thanks I get, you know. You uh, drive across town you know, to help your friend whose car broke down and on your way home you get a flat tire. I mean, it's just the way life works sometimes. It seems like you try to do something good and then it just somehow comes back on you. It backfires. I don't know if, I don't know if I always believe it, but I know I've experienced it. I know I've, I've, seen, the, I've seen this truth, at least in moments of my life. One time years ago, I was driving Casey to a, a church co-ed softball league game. Uh, I don't play sports. Any of you who know me well, you know, like, I don't, I don't play sports. I don't even like sports, like any sports. Uh, sometimes on Sunday afternoons I'll sleep through them because you can really sleep, you can sleep through golf. Like that's the best nap in your life for a baseball game. I, but honestly, I, I just, I don't play. I'm terrible. But my wife is awesome. Casey's a great athlete. She's amazing. So Casey is on the team. I'm just a spectator. I sit up in the bleachers with the women and children, you know, eating Starburst and Pixie Sticks, you know, and waiting for it all to be over. Actually, the only reason I went to that game that night was because Casey was going to take me to Sonic when it was over. I'm just there for the Sonic. But it turns out that this is the, the championship, like the last game of the tournament and Woodburn Baptist Church, our team, our co-ed team is in the finals, last game. This decides who's the champion and our team was awesome. Back in the day when Jimmy White was our pitcher, Jimmy White is an amazing pitcher. He makes the ugliest face in the world. I like when he pitches, but he can lay, he spins that ball, he can drop it wherever, I mean, Jimmy White, was an amazing pitcher, just great. Jack Wright was the coach, and uh, our team was about to win this whole thing. So I'm up in the bleachers, and how it works, you need five men, five women, and if you do not have enough of each, then you have to forfeit, right? So anyway, I'm up in the bleachers. I'm already, you know, I'm, I'm not paying any attention because I... My spirit leaves my body in the bleachers. Uh, so I'm up here. All of a sudden, Jack's walking. The game hadn't started. Jack's walking toward me. And Jack walk, walk, And before he gets to me, I, I, know, what, I know what's up. I, I know what's up. They got four guys, right? I, I know that they're a guy short, and he's about to ask me to play. And, and I don't have to think. I don't have to pray about this. I don't have to think about it. It's no. No. So Jack said, you know, Tim, I, I know how you feel. I know you don't like to play. I, I know you're not comfortable playing. But we just, the church needs you. I said, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. With sports people, you just got to be firm. No, no, I don't care. I don't care. You, you can't. Sports people run all over you. No, no, I don't care. He said, you know, but it's a tournament. It's the last game of the tournament, and, and we could win this thing, but, but if you don't play, we forfeit. So I don't care. I don't care. No, no, no. See, Jack came. Jimmy White was like the real coach, but Jimmy didn't come because Jimmy knew. Jimmy knew. My wife didn't come because Casey, honestly, she knew I'm not going to, but she also knows if I do, it's not going to end well. So Casey's not over here. It's Jack Wright. Jack's going, you know, we really need you, you know, and your wife's on this team, and, you know, she's counting on you. I mean, and Jack said, Jesus is counting on you, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. He laid on thick. And then Jack said, what Jack said, Jack said, if, if you'll just, you know, all we need, just let us count you. Just come out here and be counted. You won't really have to do anything. I said, you promise? He said, yeah, if you come, I'll just, I'll do everything I can. You won't even have to, you won't even get close to a ball. I said, okay, okay. 
So I went out, and sure enough, for, for the biggest part of that game, I didn't get close to a ball, which is fine. It's fine with me. I don't want to be there, all right? But then it's, y'all know where this is going, right? It's the last inning. Our team is down by one point. There are two, two outs. And then somebody says, Tim, you're up. I said, no, I'm not. I did, y'all. I mean, I, I, you, can't, you can't, like, act like Jesus with sports people because I run all over you. I said, no, I'm not. They said, it, you got a bat. I said, no, I don't. They said, you have to. I said, I'm not. I mean, our church is falling apart in the dugout, but I'm not, y'all. I'm not about to go out there and bat. They said, you have to. I said, I'm not. I said, because I know what will happen. There are two outs. This is the last out. I'm going to make the last out. Y'all going to lose the game, and y'all are going to blame me. And they all said, no, please, Tim, we won't blame you. We won't blame you. They lied. They lied. So I'm going out there. They hand me a bat. I don't know what to do with a bat. Y'all, I don't do this. I'm not even interested. On my way out, Jack just says, just keep your eye on the ball. That's just something dumb they say to people. Keep your, you don't go keep your, I mean, what kind of freak stares at a ball that somebody's throwing at you? I mean, you know, if you throw a ball at me, I'm going to shut my eyes, you know, and duck and run. It's crazy. So I go out there, you know, and, you know, sure enough, I'm standing. I don't know what to do. They pitch the ball. I swing. I miss. Strike one. You know, y'all know how this goes. Strike two. Strike three. And then the ump says, yeah. You know, and then what happens? Our entire church team will not make eye contact with me. Like, nobody will look at me. Jimmy White walks away. Jack Wright gets in his truck and drives off. Travis Hopkins throws his hat and kicks the dust like this. My wife did not take me to Sonic. <laughs> see, I was just trying to do something good. I just want to go, hey, all you church sports people, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have had a game. You know, like, they don't remember that. They could have forfeited with dignity. But they drag me out there. I lose the game. They blame me. I'm telling you, no good deed goes unpunished. I'm the only reason they got to play. And when it was over, I'm the reason they lost. See, you can't, you, can't, you can't work with sports people. No good deed goes unpunished, which I have a feeling is something of the way the woman must have felt in chapter 17, verse 17, when her son dies. You understand? This woman takes a, a tremendous risk because remember when Elijah meets her, she's got nothing. She's got a handful of flour, a little squirt of oil. She says, I was about to go home, make the smallest little supper ever. Me and my son are going to eat it and we were just going to starve to death. Elijah says, that's not what's going to happen. Take me home. Uh, let me eat first. And then I'm telling you from now on, there's always going to be enough until the Lord says this thing's going to be over. And that's what happens. And this is exactly how it turns out. The Lord provides miraculously every single day. Now, understand, somehow her container is always empty, but then it's always enough, too. It's crazy how God works. Every single time she had to empty it out, but every single time there was more when she went back to it because God was meticulously caring for the flour in her kitchen and the oil in her jug. God takes care of this girl, and it's amazing, but at the same time, she still has to be obedient, and she has. 
I mean, she's let the prophet come into her house. He's living in her house. Breakfast, lunch, and supper. The whole ordeal of never really having enough, but then always having enough because of God. She has to live on that edge of scarcity and, and, and abundance. I mean, just this life of faith which she's learning to live. It's amazing. But still, you got a preacher up in your house. He's washing out his suits in her laundry room. He's hanging his socks on her tub. I mean, he's up in there all the time watching her Netflix. I mean, breakfast, lunch, and supper. She's got Elijah in her house. All she's trying to do is to do something good, trying to do what the Lord wants her to do. But, but what happens? Her son gets sick. And then he gets sicker. Take some time here. He doesn't get hit by a bus and die suddenly. This is a drawn out kind of thing. He gets sick and sicker and sicker, and then he dies. She was only trying to do something good. I mean, she was right there doing everything she knew how to do in the worst of times, a famine, a, a drought. And now her son dies? She comes out and goes right to the prophet Elijah. I mean, she lets him have it. Verse 18, she lets him have it. And honestly, I got a lot of grace for this girl because I, I, I feel everything she feels. I, I really do. Oh, man of oh God, she says, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? I mean, you got to hear the heartbreak, the anguish of what she's saying because this is what it feels like to her. I mean, this is what it feels like. Remember, this woman didn't even know the Lord at the beginning. She talks about, you know, God being your God, talking to Elijah. And now all of a sudden you got the preacher up in your house and now she feels like God knows her address. So now that, no, now that God knows where she lives, now God's remembering all the bad stuff she's done. So now God is just letting her have it. God's punishing her. That's how she feels. You know, she's trying to do something good, but what if she'd never let the you know, crazy preacher in her house? Maybe none of this had happened if when he came up and knocked on her door, she just said, nobody's home. I mean, what if she'd never even started this mess? Now the preacher's here, and now everything has gone crazy. Now her son is dead. Is this what you're doing, man of God? Is this why you're here? I can say, I, I, I got some compassion for this woman because I know that's how it felt. I mean, I, I know there's more to the story, but have you not felt some of what she's felt? It's just that um, mysterious, um, can I say maddening providence of God, the way God works. I mean, God works miracles, we know that he does. But, but the way that God just so selectively does what he does, there's just something really frustrating about the fact that God was so very attentive to the flour in her kitchen you know, and the oil in her jug. Like, like God constantly measuring out the ingredients so she always has just enough for bread every single day. But then her son dies. You know, the God who's working this everyday miracle in the kitchen but seems not to notice that her son is sick and then sicker and then sicker and then he's dead. I mean, what is God doing? Like all of this sudden, this kitchen miracle doesn't exactly seem you know, so hot anymore because I promise you, that woman, that mother would have just rather died of starvation than watch her son die. She'd trade her life for his life. This isn't at all what she would have asked for. If God's going to work a miracle, it wouldn't have been the kitchen miracle. She would want her son to be alive. It's just that 
frustrating way that things turn out and you can't always explain why God does why God why God does what he does. Why? So she goes straight to Elijah. Man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Okay. She's wrong. That's not the explanation. It's not Elijah's fault. And for that matter, it's not that God's punishing her. But the thing is, whatever it is you believe about God and the extent to which you you know God, that's going to be all you have when it's time to explain what God's doing in your life. If you don't really know him, you're never going to understand his ways. And, and if you don't really trust him or if you don't really know what to believe about God, when you really have these moments where you have to try to understand him, you're probably always going to jump to a wrong conclusion. That's what she does. It's, it's not Elijah's fault. It's not that God just now somehow found her address and knows where to send the punishment. It's not about punishment. That's not what this is about at all, but that's all she knows. But like I say, I, man, I, I'm going to be soft on her. I've, I've felt this before. You know, when I, um, when I was diagnosed with cancer, which a number of you have, have as well, so that doesn't make me unique. But when I was diagnosed with cancer, the doctor told me I would probably had that cancer in my gut for seven years. He thought probably it was been growing for seven years. And I smiled politely when the doctor told me that. But when I got out of there, I had a talk with the Lord. And this is just how I am, and I apologize for how I am, but that's how I am. And, and I was angry at the Lord. Not angry, just sort of, God, what have you been doing for seven years? Because I know that God knows every cell in my body. And I know that God saw, I mean, God didn't need a colonoscopy to see my cancer. You know, I know that God knows everything about me, and he knew that cancer was there. And for seven years, he let it grow. And I could not understand that. And I took it straight to him. I mean, I did. I just did. I said, God, I don't understand. What in the world have you been doing for seven years if this kind of thing grows in me and you've done nothing about that? Yet, What in the world are you doing? And I just felt the Lord so very kindly and wisely say to me, son, you have no idea. Now, what that meant, what that meant, and I understood what God meant, was it, I have no idea how often he's doing exactly what I just accused him of never doing, right? That idea that he saw cancer cells going in my body and did nothing about it, that's when God says, you have no idea. Because you understand, he's doing that for you and me all the time. I guarantee you, he is constantly taking care of us in ways we don't even know because he's a good father. And he sees and he knows and he takes care of us. You have no idea. It would be nice if God could send you a text message just to let you know sometimes, hey, just want to let you know, traffic update, you should have died on the way to work today, but the drunk driver coming your way, I steered him into the other direction, you're welcome. You know, because that happens all the time. Don't you understand that? All the times that God brought your teenage daughter home and she drives like crazy, like she should have never made it, but God brought her home to you, you don't know, you have no idea. All the times that God looks down and he sees cancer cells in your pancreas and he just erases them. It'd be nice. 
He could send you a text message and say, just to let you know, you had just a little bit of cancer in your pancreas. I took care of that for you today. You'll never even be sick. You're welcome. But he doesn't. We just never really know. You take the biology test in school. You pass it by the skin of your teeth. God ought to just write on the bottom, you know, by the way, dummy. I whispered the correct answer to three of those in your ear so you could pass this thing. Next time you should study. Love God. You, you know, I mean, what if God just always told you exactly so that you always knew? But the point is he doesn't. But he's always taking care of you in ways that you can't even imagine and you don't even acknowledge. You have no idea. And so this woman, on the one hand, you're like, God, you're taking care of the flour and the oil, but you don't care about the sun. What's up with that? Why would you let that happen? What have you been doing? See, here's the thing. I cannot explain to you all of the ways of a sovereign and majestic God. I cannot explain to you the mysteries of his providence. I can't. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. But I can tell you this, and I've just learned this in my life. With God, what happens is never as important as what happens next. In your life, some terrible things will happen. Terrible things will happen to you because terrible things happen to everybody. This is the world. This is life. But when something happens to you, I promise you, most of the time you're going to try to explain it and you're going to jump to the wrong conclusion. And, and for the most part, those why questions, you know, why God, why? I don't know that a real explanation that would satisfy you is coming. So here's what I do. You know, rather than focus on what just happened, I just try to put all my faith and hope in what happens next. You see, you got to wait and see what God does next. Because what God does next is always going to change the way you understand what just happened. It's, it, it's what God does next that matters. See, this woman has no idea what God's about to do next. So she comes out to Elijah, says, man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Elijah doesn't answer. He just says, here, give me the boy's body. And he takes that boy's dead body in his arms and takes him up to the roof where he's been sleeping. And he lays that body out and he takes it to God. Now, what you got to notice is that the words of Elijah's prayer, when Elijah takes it to God, he sounds a whole lot like the same words when the woman was taking it to him. He gets up there and Elijah cries out to the Lord. Verse 20, oh, Lord, my God, Why? Why have you brought tragedy to this widow who's opened her home to me, causing her son to die? I mean, will you not just recognize? He sounds a lot like the woman there. His prayer sounds exactly like her complaint. I mean, it's the same kind of anguish, the same brokenhearted bewilderment. I mean, God, why? What? So what's the difference between the woman's brokenhearted complaint and Elijah's prayer. What's the difference? The difference is Elijah takes it to God. He takes it to God. He takes it to God, the one who holds all things in his hands, the one that can actually do something about this. He takes it to God. My hunch is in your life, your worries, your concerns, your complaints, you don't take them to God. Unfortunately, everybody else in your life's got to hear you complain all the time. I mean, you just complain and you worry out loud 
always worrying, always complaining, you know, always letting other people have it. But can I just please just explain to you that you're complaining to all the wrong people? You're worrying out loud to all the wrong people? Why don't you take it to the Lord? Why don't you take it to Him? Stop complaining to your wife. Stop complaining to your husband. Just stop complaining. Stop worrying. Take it to the Lord. It's what Elijah does. It's not a beautiful prayer at all. It sounds just as angry and just as jacked up as what the woman said, but he takes it to God. When this is how you feel, this is how you pray. Verse 21, he stretches himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, oh Lord my God, please let this child's life return to him. Now what you need to know is in in Elijah's original prayer, the New Living Translations added a word there, adds the word please. Elijah did not say please. He just says, God, do this, do this. God, bring this boy's soul back to his body, Lord, do this. Which is audacious and amazing. Because I'm telling you, there's a lot of great stuff in the Bible, and Elijah's bound to have heard a lot of stories about what God can do, but there's never been a story like this. This is the first time God reverses death. Elijah's never, now one time heard a story where something like this happened, but that's the amazing thing. It never occurs to Elijah that God can't do it. Never crosses his mind that God can't do it. He doesn't know what God will do, but it never crosses his mind that he's praying for something that's not possible. God, do this. Do this. Bring the boy's soul back to his body. Lord, do this. And then verse 22 You guys, I have known this story my whole life. I've read this story my whole life. But honestly, just in preparation for this message, have I really, really understood verse 22? What does it say? The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. The text says, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Now, that's amazing to me. First off, when you read through the book of Elijah, the story of Elijah, you know that what makes Elijah unique is the way that he is constantly listening to the voice of the Lord. Elijah listens to the voice of the Lord, and and, and that's what makes him the prophet. That's what makes him a man that God can use. Elijah listens to the voice of the Lord. But in verse 22, it says, the Lord... Listen to the voice of Elijah. Do you possibly understand what that means? I mean, do you understand how that works in this story? I mean, Elijah prays, and it changes the way the story turns out. It, it changes the way the story turns out because God listens. God listens to his prayer. God listens to his voice, and it changes the way the story turns out. I, I know. I know some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Tim, what does that mean for God's sovereignty? I, I don't know. I know God's sovereign. I, I know that he is. I, I know that God is great and, and, and God is a, a big God. I know he's in control of everything. He knows all things, but I also know something else. He wants us to pray. He asks us to pray to him. And Elijah prays, and the scripture says, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. That prayer makes a difference. It doesn't say, and then the boy came back to life because that was the plan from the whole beginning. 
Then the boy came back to life because that's why Elijah was there in the first place. No, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. What it says is this happened and then Elijah stopped and he went and he prayed to God. And then something else happened because Elijah prayed. Y'all, I, I don't know any other way than to explain to you that's how prayer works. I don't know all about God's sovereignty. I don't know how, all about the mysteries of his providence. But I know that he wants us to understand how prayer works. Because prayer is the language of your relationship to God. Prayer is the, the central nerve of your faith. Prayer begins with faith that God listens and responds to your voice. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God has a plan and God has a purpose, but there's a wideness to it because guess what? He wants you to pray. He wants you to bring your requests and ask and seek and knock, understanding that he listens. We're not talking about like how your husband listens he, like, insofar as he hears your voice droning on, but then he doesn't respond. God listens when you speak to him in prayer and God responds, your voice, your requests, your desires, your needs, your burdens, they move God. They move him. I'm not making any of this up, y'all. The book of James in talking about prayer says what? It says, you do not have because you do not ask. You have not because you ask not, which simply means there are things right now lacking in your life because you've never bothered to pray. You've never bothered to ask for them. There are things that have never happened in the life of this church because all of us together have never managed to pray a big enough prayer for all of God's purposes to be fulfilled for us. You understand there are things that happen when you pray and sometimes things that don't happen because you don't. This is how prayer works. Elijah takes that dead body to the roof of the house and prays an audacious prayer, a bold prayer. And the scripture says, God heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the boy returned to the body. Things will happen when you pray that will never happen if you don't pray. Does it make sense? you understand that? Do you believe that? See, here's the thing. I think I believe it too. But then I just feel like if I really believe this, I'd pray. I'd pray differently. I'd pray more. I mean, you say you believe this, but let's be honest. I mean, what was your prayer life like this week? What, what did you ask God for? I mean, to bless your food. I know, I know, we all did that. Um, something tells me if, if you and I really believe that, that we pray and God listens, that, that, that we can pray and it'll change the way things turn out. I mean, first off, if you don't believe that, what's prayer for? What's prayer for? And if you do believe that, does that not change everything? Does that not change everything? Well, Pastor, what are you talking about? Of course we believe it. We all said we believed it. We nodded our heads. We said we believed it. We believe it. We're in church. We believe it. Yeah, I, I know, but take a look at the text again. Uh, the woman. Don't you love this girl? Man, I love her. Verse 18. This is when she's first coming at Elijah. She says to Elijah, oh, man of God, what have you done to me? Okay, notice. She calls him man of God. Verse 18. Beginning of the story. Man of God. 
And then notice in verse 24, after the story, after everything that happened had happened, then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that what? You're a man of God. Okay, did she know? Did she know at the beginning? She says, now I know, but she seemed to know before. What does this mean? It just simply means that honestly in the life of faith, you will continually grow deeper into the things that you know. The first Bible verse I ever learned in Sunday school in the primary class was simple. It was an abbreviated version of John 3.16, but they taught us seven words. God loved us and sent his son. First Bible verse I ever learned. God loved us and sent his son. We learned it and then they put us on the stage of the church and we took turns saying it. God loved us and sent his son and we got a piece of bubble gum if we said it. God loved us and sent his son. God loved us and sent his son. And I am a 56-year-old man continuing to grow deeper and deeper into the knowledge that God loved us and sent his son. I'm never going to outgrow that. I'm never going to plumb the depths of God's grace and wisdom and knowledge in the gospel. You have not because you ask not. I mean, you've heard that. You know that verse. You believe that verse. But do you believe it? Do you, do you know it? I mean, I know you think you know it, but do you really know? You say that you believe that God listens and responds to your prayer. Do you really believe that? Because if you believe that, I think you'd pray. A woman calls him, man, I got it. At the end of the story, she says, okay, now I know. Now I know. In other words, I mean, she knew it, but now her knowledge is at a different level. So I, I know there are all kinds of things that, that, you, that you say you believe, and I know you believe them, things that you know, and, and I know you know them, but I'm telling you, in this life of faith, um, you're always going to go deeper. I know you believe that, that there's a God who works miracles, of course, our problem is, like the lady, we want to see miracles. We just don't ever want to be in a situation that might require one. You know, if you never had a problem, you really would never really know that God can solve them. If you have never experienced the absolute collapse of your marriage, if you've never just stood there in the bedroom and stared at that woman and wondered if, if, if you could stand to look at her another day, I mean, if you've never experienced the death of your marriage, then you would never understand the way God can bring that back. If you've never had a prodigal son or daughter who told you they hated you and walked away, if you've never experienced the way God brings them back home, then you'd never know what God can do. If you never got sick, you'd never know that God can heal. Understand, this is how this works. I can't explain to you all the mysteries of God's ways, his providence, his sovereignty, all I know is that sometimes things happen, but the most important thing is what happens next, what God does next. Believe that? Believe that you are the focus of his attention, his affection? Do you believe that? That when you pray, he listens? And that when you pray, things can happen that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't prayed? I mean, do you believe that? Something tells me if you and I really believe that, 
we'd be different. Pray with me. I said it, Lord. I said, pray with me. And I bowed my head and I closed my eyes and the people bowed their heads and they closed their eyes. And, and so we're praying now. But God, I bowed my head. I closed my eyes. My mouth started saying words out loud. And, and all of this happens, Lord, so many times without ever really acknowledging that in this prayer, we're addressing you, oh Lord, a God who listens. You're, you're listening. You're really listening. You're the maker of heaven and earth. You're the giant king of the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, completely beyond all of our imaginations, but beyond the fathoming of our minds, Lord Jesus. We can't even imagine your greatness, but then to imagine that when I begin to speak with my pathetic little voice in prayer, that somehow you listen like a father who longs to give good gifts. You listen with love, with, with complete understanding, with total knowledge of everything I know and think and feel and need. And yet, Lord, still, with, with all of your knowledge, I can't tell you anything you don't know. But you wait for me. You wait for me to come. You, you wait for me to acknowledge you. You wait for me to ask, to seek and knock. And keep on asking and keep on knocking. Lord, you somehow want this relationship with us. You could do it all from up there. You could do it all impersonally. You could fix all of our problems, Lord, from a distance, and we'd never even know. But, Lord... You want us to know you. You want us to know your glory. You want us to know your greatness. You want us to pray. You want us to ask. Because you want us to know that you are a father who loves us, who cares for us, who will respond to all of our cries. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to know that you listen. Teach us to remember that you're powerful. Teach us to pray impossible prayers for impossible things to the God that we know can do impossible things. Jesus, we say that we know and believe all these things. Help us, Lord, truly to know and believe all these things so that we may receive everything that you would have for us, you good, good Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.